Welcome to Beyond Food and Wine, a Le Cordon Bleu podcast. In this podcast, we get some real insight into the food and hospitality industry from a variety of renowned chefs, industry experts, and Le Cordon Bleu alumni. Join us as we hear the fascinating stories and unique experiences behind some of the best-known names in the industry. Welcome to Le Cordon Bleu's podcast sessions, which we have done over the last few years with several industry leaders. And today, I'm particularly proud to have a, a hopefully a great chat with one of the top industry leaders in luxury hospitality industry, who has graced few different amazing luxury hotels in the European and North American segment. I'm at the iconic Gucci suite at the, at the Savoy London, where there is a fair bit of history of hospitality being born and also being engraved in the many aspects of culinary and gastronomy aspects, which has created a, a lot of impact in the hospitality industry. I welcome Frank Arnold, who is the area vice president and the managing director of Savoy London, who is going to potentially give a bit of a great insight of uh, a bit of stories in terms of hospitality journey, which he has encountered and some of the insights of what are the trends and challenges and opportunities what we can potentially see in the world of luxury hospitality sector. Frank, welcome to the session and thank you very much for sparing a valuable time of yours and getting this started off. Nitin, thank you for coming to the Savoy and uh, you know I'm really honored to, uh, to, uh, to be able to share some time with you and spend some time with you and with your audience and um, and to tell a little bit more about uh, about the Savoy Hotel. Of course, we've got the Royal Street by Gucci. Yes. Uh, and it's extraordinary views of, uh, you know, of London. Quite amazing location um, there. You know, every, um, every corner, as you well know, because to the audience, Nitin worked here a few years ago. And uh, he did excel. So he did not become a professor from day one. He started his journey very much at the Savoy. Maybe he'll tell us about it later. Anyway, welcome to the Savoy. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's two decades back that I was here and it gave me an immense stepping stone into what uh, a great platform for the wider hospitality, which I embraced over the years. Frank, you have had an amazing journey in this hospitality industry. You've worked in many different places. Why don't you, if you can just give a bit of an insight on your journey to the hospitality and how you landed up at the Savoy, this iconic oh, Savoy. Oh, well, I hope you have got some time, ladies and gentlemen. We because, do have. You know, I'm not, I'm not 30 anymore, and therefore it's taking me quite a while, a bit of time to, you know, to, to actually give me, you know, the, the chance and the privilege to, uh, to be here at the Savoy today with you. I started, uh, you know, I was, I would say I was not a dropout, but close to being a dropout of, uh, of uh, high school. And I did not know what I wanted to do in my life. And I was around 15 years old. And a friend of mine had, had started this school in Strasbourg, France, uh, where he had the chance to be learning 
how to become a cook. We used to say cook, now it's a chef, hmm. but a, a chef. And, uh, and he was telling me about what he was learning, etc. I always loved cooking and the idea of being able to travel uh, doing what you know, doing something with your with your life professionally, and have the chance to m be with people, s discover different cultures, and that through a, the cooking. But I found that absolutely, you know, uh, exciting. When at the time when when you are fourteen, fifteen years old, you don't really know what to do, uh, and uh, you're not really motivated to to just to regular program. So I had the chance to join a hotel school mm -hmm. and uh, to become uh, to become a chef. So I went to to the culinary program initially, and um, I spent uh, the two first years of hotel school uh, learning how to to become a, a cook, a chef. But then I loved everything that I was learning. I really enjoyed, and I had the chance to continue and pursue my education. And then I did what the, the equivalent of uh, the, you know the high school degree, but uh, specializing uh, in hospitality, culinary and restaurant. Then I had the chance because I was still enjoying what I, what I was learning. Yes, I worked in different hotels and restaurants and uh, in stage internships, and uh, so I did a, uh, a diploma in management in hospitality. I did my military service. Uh, in France, and after that, I had the chance to to uh, to attend a master's in international hospitality at uh, a business school in France called ESSEC in Paris that had a joint program with Cornell University in the U.S., which I did, and uh, I graduated from there, and I joined a company back then called Intercontinental, which had a great uh, management development program. Um, and uh, so I joined Intercontinental. I worked in uh, initially, in very initially in Paris until I was uh, transferred where? To London, that was 1992. Wow. Uh, I worked uh, in Hyde Park Corner at the Intercontinental Park Lane. Um, then I was I, I was transferred to Athens in food and beverage. I worked initially in rooms because they wanted to give me uh, complementary education, and I was essentially a food and beverage person. Then I wanted to get back to food and beverage. I was assistant director of food and beverage in Athens. And then in Brussels as FNB, EMFNB in Madrid. I opened a hotel in in, uh, in Valencia in Spain. And then I was offered the position as hotel manager at the Intercontinental, uh, the Barclay in New York City. Wow. And uh, then I had, then at that time, the company had changed because it had become a very large uh, company focused on many, many different aspects of business. And I had an opportunity to work as a hotel manager in Chicago for four seasons. Um, which didn't work out very well for me, uh, or I was not really prepared for that job at that time. And uh, but it was nevertheless probably one of my greatest learning experience, which led me to uh, to take over a beautiful luxury boutique hotel in Washington D.C. called the Jefferson, 
which had the chance to uh, run, close, and help renovate uh, and reopen as one of the, I would say, the one of the jewels of, of Washington, D.C., uh, close to the White House. Who was the president at that time? Well, it was, initially it was uh, Mr. Bush, but I had the chance, and uh, I shouldn't say that, I had the the, uh, the opportunity to witness Mr. Obama. Oh, uh, amazing. Becoming a president in the United States, which was a very historical moment, and then yeah, that was 2008, uh, while he was intronized in 2009, and then I, then I joined a hotel in Scotland called the Balmoral, one of these, I would say, grand old dam of hospitality. Yeah. And I joined and I stayed there for almost five years. Um, and then at that time, <clears throat> I was uh, I was recruited uh, by uh, the Ritz-Carlton Hotels to run their Toronto property in Canada. So again, I moved the family back because in the meantime, I, you know, I got married, had three kids, and now the kids are, you know, growing. And, um, and uh, so we moved to Canada and we stayed there again four and a half years. And uh, so we are in early 2020, COVID has hit, the Ritz-Carlton is closed. Uh, most of the hotels in the world are closed. Yes. Or, or working uh, on, a, on a very, very uh, basic and uh, minimal uh, minimal service basis. And uh, I receive a call. I'm on my way to the Ritz-Carlton in Toronto. I think I'm in my car. It's 9 o'clock in the morning. And I receive a call from this uh, recruiter headhunter who I had not spoken with and sent me a message. So yes, told me, I'd be on my way to work, although the hotel was closed, I was still going to work or going to the hotel because I, I'm not very good at working behind a computer, staying at home. And I don't think my wife enjoyed that uh, for me to be, you know, at home either. So I really enjoyed still going back to the hotel because that gave me the strength and the motivation to, uh, to get out in the best possible way of this of this pandemic, but coming back to me driving my car, uh, I have this wonderful lady who calls me and says, "Frank, can we tend to back to Europe?" I said, "No, why? You know, I, I'm here. I've been here for for over four years. You know, I'm running a great property. I work for a great company. My two sons just started university. Yes, it's COVID. Why on earth would I want to move during COVID?" Mm-hmm. And um, and they said, no, but can we tempt you back? You know, it's it's for a hotel in London. And I was expecting something to be like, you know, what, we've got this great MD, regional, uh, regional VP opportunity uh, in London, but maybe not, you know, working for not this type of property. So I'm driving and they said, no, Frank, this is very game changer. And I uh, said, but tell me, tell me, what is, what is it? What is for for regional VP and MD of the Savoy in London? Put my foot on the brake, park the car, and say, "Okay, Leslie." Go. <laughs> <laughs> the rest is uh, history. history. I moved a few months later. I arrived here during uh, it was COVID. It was the end of uh, not the end. It was it was September two thousand twenty, 
And two weeks later, I, uh, I, with the rest of the team, we reopened the Savoy, which we closed again four months later, and we reopened uh, five months later. Now, since then, it's been great, Nitin. Thank you for asking. It's been three <laughs> years, a bit more three, more than three years now. Absolutely. I, I celebrated Amazing. my third anniversary last week. Wow. And it's been a huge journey when it comes to brushing with luxury hospitality, both in Europe and North America. Now, coming back to the Savoy, which has got a timeless identity in many ways with a huge reputation to maintain. How do you, how do you, how do you and the team, the wider team, maintain the service and the quality, which is one of the key things which you have to kind of offer to this illustrious guest? How do you manage that? Um, before I, I answer the question how, I'd like to... I'd like to tell you why. Sure. You know, we are, we are the caretakers of this, of this property. Um, in a way, we are the custodian of, uh, of this hotel. It's a legacy that, that uh, we have to maintain, we have to curate, and we have to ensure that, uh, that this place it's going to be as good as it once was, if not better. This is the only way we can remain competitive in this marketplace. Yeah. We have stunning hotels around us. There are many competitors, very, very respectable hotels and new ones uh, coming in the marketplace. What we have is the Savoy. So. If you if you talk about the Savoy first, it's a name. It's like me, you know, putting my foot on the brake and parking the car. When why would I come? What what we? Why would I make a move uh, at this time uh, in history when we are facing you know uh, the largest pandemic since the earlier uh, the, the early part of the twentieth century? I think it resonates in in people's mind. It has got this aura. It's got this reputation uh, that when you say Savoy, people are oh wow, there is something like there's some glitter, there is glamour, there is something that people dream of about the Savoy, uh, something which might be ordinary for some very very well-known uh, people, and something which is extraordinary for ordinary people who still come and want to taste, have a taste of it. Have, uh, it's been etched in the history for long, especially when you is. It's almost in in synonymous uh, kind of way how you describe hospitality. When you look at the regal hospitality, you always associate Savoy, and it's it's put an etched uh, yeah. etching mark in the history of hospitality. Yes, and so we in you know in light of all this uh, this competition we have, all this you know this market, which is very, very demanding, mm -hmm. we have to constantly challenge ourselves to remain relevant, relevant to today's audience and to future audiences. So, uh, so are, how do we maintain quality? So I was answering why, because why do we have to do that? If, you know, we have the reputation, we just have to open our doors, people flock in and, uh, you know, and people spend a lot of money and leave, etc. And that mission accomplished. No. Uh -huh. We only are able to survive in the long run if we keep and maintain our promise on a day-to-day -day basis 
And on a day-to-day basis, what we do is to create these, these experiences with our guests. And it stems from that. It starts it, and it ends there. We are only as good as the last customer we had, the last guest. He had staying at the subway, whether it is for afternoon tea, uh, staying in the guest room in the suite, staying in, in a, having lunch, dinner, breakfast in our restaurant, meeting, going to the spa. We are only as good as every interaction. And this is how we manage our reputation. Of course, you are in the, you know, we end the Royal Street by Gucci. It's extraordinary. It's a very ample, large street that we sell for a lot of money. But this is the physical aspect. The tangible is this. But what we, what we curate is the intangible, is the human relations. And as I often say during uh, our orientation, I speak to uh, people who are joining the Savoy, and it's not you know, only the Savoy, any hotel of this caliber would probably have a similar approach. We are not, uh, we're not rocket scientists. We're not sending uh, spacecrafts you know, on the moon, although it's been difficult lately. But <clears throat> what we do, what, where we are, what we are, where our challenges, where uh, our very uh, existence lie, is on how well or how badly do we manage human relationships and create those extraordinary experiences. Of course, we have the Savoy, so we're gifted with, you know, a fantastic location, a great building, an extraordinary history, uh, and it's, you know, it, we can tell stories about the Savoy the whole day. But what makes us relevant is how we still manage those relationships on a day-to-day basis. This is where I would say that our expertise lies. It's not in our ability to, yes, of course, we we might be able to talk about that and technology and AI and how this will impact and affect us. But for now, and for probably at least the next couple of decades, the uh, preeminent uh, reason to be for us to be at our raison d'être is to curate and to nurture these extraordinary experiences so that people leave the Savoy and say, oh wow, yes, it's the Savoy. But it's not the glitter and the gold on the chandelier. It's the people that people meet, the people that create those interactions. It's at the end of the day, the person who cleans the room the person who be check that, you know, all the flowers, the plants, the people who prepare your food, serve it, uh, the people who check you in, who recommend you a place to go, these are all people related. We spend 75, 80% of our time curating that. Yes, quality is also the, the ability to provide an extraordinary environment. This is where you need capital and expenditure. But 80% of our time is spent with making sure we've got the best possible people to deliver the best possible experience. And that's quality. Thank you. That was a, you know, we can probably have a a topic of this particular uh, domain for spoken for almost an hour or so uh, and and go into several different uh, angles to to discuss the various issues and challenges which, which can come along. It's interesting you mentioned about the human relations. Uh, You also touched base on artificial intelligence, AI. With the changing customer needs, 
and aligning towards the, the increased digital aspects of how we are all moving into. How has the Savoy as a hotel embraced it? And, you know, we, we understand it is inevitable that we, we have to change to the, to the modern times. And, of course, we have done so many things in the, in the areas of hospitality and many industries and many sectors have embraced it very well, especially the luxury industry. But what has Savoy kind of put together in terms of getting the digitalized experiences to the to the wider uh, guest? Well, there, there, there are many examples where, in general, I don't know if we can speak really about AI, but technology in general, mm. you know, has <clears throat> enabled us to uh, to provide first a better experience because it provides us with better uh, information uh, technology so that we can anticipate guest needs. Uh, so that, that's that's very important. How we communicate uh, and how we use, you know, the technology, what you have, you know, in your hands and what we all carry with us is, is, is unbelievably helpful mm. to... Uh, to anticipate, to react, to communicate, and therefore to deliver a high level of service to our guests who come here. Um, it is also helping us to become more efficient. And True. therefore, uh, these are investments in technology, whether it is information technology, uh, it's uh, property management system, it's uh, guest relations management, management system, is guest room management systems, GRMS technology in the guest room that we are now testing for the new version of our guest rooms, which is going to be implemented. It's a whole concierge app, uh, which is going to be providing uh, instant access to people, to, to services. So that only increases the speed at which we can react uh, it gives, especially, you know, we have younger generations who uh, rely a lot on this type of, of tools to, uh, to make decisions. Younger, no, I do that too, sorry. Uh, it's for everybody to actually enjoy. Um, but, you know, when I speak about a guest room management CGRMS system, uh, it still provides us, yes, with better access, better, you know, it, it avoids making mistakes. For instance, if you have the ability to place directly an order that will be, uh, or you have an order form of some sort that will be directly on your phone that you can link to the, to the, to, to the hotel technology that goes directly either to the concierge or to the in-room dining coordinator, it, it probably will avoid as well some uh, it will avoid some communication mistakes mm -hmm. and faults that you know we we do we because we are human, but it will never replace the well never replace. It can, for instance, you know robots have arrived. Robots have started cleaning rooms. Uh, robots are answering queries and questions, but that's not true luxury. I think the luxury will continue to exist, provided that we can continue making mistakes, you know, and uh, because we're only human. And therefore, you know, when we make mistakes, we need to make amend. Therefore, we create something very unique because we can, we can overcome these frustrations or this uh, failure or this uh, 
these thresholds by becoming human, we try very hard. These aspects of service delivery comes from the heart, you know, and it comes from the guts. And robots, the beauty of robots is they will never have hearts or guts. And, and we as human, uh, we will continue to create those experiences because we are able to tie and link each other with the heart, with the gut, sometimes with our brain as well. But the brain will last be replaced. I would say if it's only intellectual, I think, yes, a lot of professions are at stake or at risk. Mm. In our industry, especially in the luxury part of hospitality, I think that what makes us very unique and what guests will continue to seek, possibly at a higher cost, will be uh, these human experiences because everything else might one day become automated. And, uh, and maybe I don't want to see that world when it becomes all automated. You know, and, you know I like to think that we have, still have something to add in this world. In our little thing, you know, we are, we are provider of good times. You know, again, we are not, we're not revolutionizing the world. We are here to provide uh, social... Uh, opportunities, environment that that uh, that goes beyond environment that and opportunities to meet, to socialize, to uh, to date, mm. to uh, to encounter, uh, to be wowed, to be uh, to be uh, you know mesmerized, uh, to be surprised, and I think we still can do that in our industry of luxury hospitality. That said. We are not uh, totally, uh, you know, uh, ignorant and uh, and uh, dismissing the idea that AI will take more and more a more a more pro preeminent, you know, uh, part since you know in in our in our day to day life. You know what? Some of the thoughts what you shared there can be actually put as quotes in the coming uh, <clears throat> years, actually, and which can when we reflect back into. The, the history, how the evolving of the human transmission or human touch to the, the linkage of technology, some of the things what you shared with robots, the hearts and guts, that's, that's quite interesting. You know, I went to see this concert recently. Uh, it was more actually a show than a concert. It was ABBA. Mm. It was all virtual reality. It was all... Uh, as you call those scenes, uh, uh, you know, projected. So they were done. But it, it felt like real when you were like 50 yards from the stage. And, um, and it was absolutely extraordinary. Um, the technology that was employed there was just fantastic. The show was, again, extraordinary. What I missed is that it did not touch my heart, you know. Mm -hmm. It failed to get me standing, you know, singing, dancing, because there were a few details that were missing on these uh, avatars. You know, the eyes. The eyes when there was, you know, when, when, when the camera, you know, uh, you know, when the camera was projecting a bigger... Uh, image of the singer, mm -hmm. then you can see that the eyes were somewhere, but not with us. It was virtual. 
and uh, and therefore I was not singing but dancing. I was watching. <laughs> I thought it was a great show, and this is where I think that you know we still had a little bit of future ahead of us as humans. As humans, correct. Now with Savoy as this historic inst- institution, which kind of screams luxury. It's almost a bit more than a decade that uh, one of the major refurbishment has happened. One of the probably the most expensive one in, in in London or probably in Europe. There are there are several elements to to take into account here. I'm specifically looking into the design aspects of it. What are the things worthy about talking about those designs of the Savoy? I know there's many, but if we can probably highlight few. First, you have to imagine that there are many stakeholders. First, there are the owners who have to, um, they have to vouch for a mission, a vision that uh, the designers will come. I know first you have a, you have a bidding, you have a tendering process mm. for the design company that will be uh, will be taking us, you know, in our next. 10 to 20 years. And um, probably the greatest challenge when it comes to designing a new room or a new suite for the for the Savoy is to integrate the past, 134 years of history to integrate that. So there's a certain feel that a renovation needs to embody. Uh, it's the history, the legacy. Once you enter a new room, you still need to feel that you are at the Savoy. And so there are markers, they are historical, they are design markers that need to be present in these uh, uh, in these designs. And then there is the new story. How do we tell? Because we need to, you know, we need to step forward. Mm-hmm. We need to to move along with the world around us. We cannot just. Uh, Otherwise, we would still be having exactly the same rules that it was built in 1889. So we definitely need to, to, to move forward, respecting and embracing, embracing the past, but also not negating the future. You know, as an analogy, I would say, you know, look, which is actually a much younger product, but it's the Porsche 911, right? It's been in existence in 1915, so it's much younger. It's half the age of the Savoy, by the way. Uh, however, they have been able to maintain an extraordinary positioning uh, with a car that does not have anything to do with the original car, but yet you know that you're still in 911. So. If you use this analogy with the Savoy and say, okay, how can we maintain the legacy, but being totally and, uh, you know, very relevant? One, it to be historically relevant, but we also need to be working and living in today's terms. So with so many competitions um, in, the, in the marketplace, there is a lot of emphasis on design. And how do you differentiate as uh, a luxury operator in dealing with the, the new uh, clientele market when it comes to design? Well, first we have to take into consideration what the trends are. But we cannot only be trendy because we're not a lifestyle hotel. 
We're a historical classic hotel that needs to remain relevant in the future. So we need to take into consideration what the trends are, what the technology is, but we also need to provide still to every customer entering a Savoy guest room, for instance, uh, the sense that they're still at the Savoy. So we need to, uh, to, to embrace and we need to, you know, to accept and take with us this extraordinary history with us. And uh, that needs to be then transformed by a designer who will take that history into consideration, the trends, the technology, the needs and wants of existing and future customers, transform that into a design that will be approved and uh, that and supported by, of course, us, the operating management team, the guests, but most importantly, by the owners. Yes. And also by the company, by, by people who are designers and experts who will help us make the right decisions. There are several layers of people you're talking about. Yes, and I forgot to mention, uh, um, you know, the operating team. It means we need to have a thorough understanding of how this guest room will survive and how sustainable it's going to be uh, in the future. Because we don't do renovation every year, you know. In the in the best case scenario, it's every se seven to ten years. Now we've had COVID in between. We are now at thirteen years minus two two and a half years of COVID. So. It's for us. It's uh, it's it's time to uh, to do something so that we you know we still, still the remain being the Savoy. Well, um, I'm sure there is a lot of history being uh, etched and how this is going to be transformed into guest experiences. But now talking about guest experiences, food and beverage is a very crucial element of what Savoy is famous for. Um, over the years, especially with the inception of Savoy, started with Caesarits, the legendary Caesarits, as a first manager, and Auguste Escoffier as the as a, the first chef who created uh, a lot of groundbreaking things. Uh, the brigade system. When you mentioned about the 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 brigade uh, or the chefs, and in, in especially the hierarchy, the very brigade system was created at the Savoy. Now, with so much of food and beverage focus in this building, what are your thought processes? What are your focus in terms of gastronomy, especially when you deal with a lot of different stakeholders? Because it's one of the hotels which has taken different angles in getting the best of food and beverage for the designing customers. So if you can just share a bit of the the thought process behind your FMB management, yeah. the gastronomy aspect. Well, first we're in London, you know, and we cannot disassociate any thought process with the fact that we're in, the, we're in the, one of the most exciting gastronomic capitals of the world. It was not the same in 1992 when I arrived here. The most exciting in the U, one of the only restaurants that was exciting other than traditional French restaurants, which were good for what they were at the time, but that was the only thing, it was Quaglino's. That was the exciting stuff for 24-year-old in London. Oh, we need to go and we need to say that. And it's still, and I'm glad that it's still in existence nowadays. But back then, 
nobody wants to speak about well gastronomy. I think uh, I think British uh, people uh, always found a good excuse to travel to experience that until you know they came to realize that uh, first it's a land of so much great food produce uh, when it comes to uh, when it comes to fish it's an island it's surrounded by extraordinary seas and so all the seafood the fish and on land you've got a very rich wealth you look around us it's green for pasture it can't be a green pasture around maybe sure. it's a little bit so so far away so if you think about it you know to come to terms with the fact that it's an extraordinary land for that and then we needed people to do that. Stop hiring French people to do it or Italians, you know. And then suddenly we started to have British chefs coming to terms with the fact that, yes, this is a real profession. We've got a real extraordinary land to work with. This is how, you know, we, you know, Marco Pierre-Bois, Heston Blumenthal, Gordon Ramsay, and plus all the other French chefs have been here, you know, the Roux brothers, you know, the Raymond Blanc, these are extraordinary chefs. And, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm probably missing uh, uh, many, many very deserving chefs and younger chefs that come to play now. But I think if you look at historically where, where Britain was, uh, it's more 30 years ago now, actually 30 years ago, uh, and where it is now, it is a totally transformed country where people have become obsessed with food. People have become foodie. And then you know what? Uh, you know when I arrived and during COVID, I was invited to uh, to speak to wine producers in England. And you know I had just arrived from Canada. My, the only thing I remembered from uh, wine producing, I was in Scotland, so there was no wine. Uh, it was whiskey. But in in uh, in England was you know yes, I heard that some you know some people had tempted to do producing wines. Now I was not well informed. That's one thing. And then I'm invited to speak to this English and Welsh wine, wine association, uh, wine makers association. So, yeah, sure. So, how many people are going to? Because it was online. How many people am, am I going to talk to? Oh, you're going to have uh, around 450. Excuse me. Yes. Yeah. And I was flabbergasted to discover in the industry there's so much growing. And of course, since then I've come to discover they actually beautiful wines that are, that are being made here, not only in sparkling, but in, in others, you know. And climate change is a reality that is yep. going to change the winemaking landscape. Especially the south of England has benefited from the climate change. Yeah, it's a bit sad for, you know, uh, about why, yes. but definitely now, you know, I hear that Pinot is coming and some more, and different, different grapes from, uh, you know, uh, that are more resistant than others, yes. etc. Again, to make their way to uh, to Britain, I think it's extraordinary. So the Britain I used to know uh, in terms of gastronomy then and now has drastically transformed. Uh, so with that, we've got you know the best contenders around the world want to have a place in London, um, and uh, nowadays if we want to uh, remain successful as a hotel, we have to offer panel uh, choices that are commensurate with uh, what the people want. Now, we can't do everything. We can't be everything to all people. Um, and therefore, we have decided that whatever we do, 
we are going to stay true to who we are. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to uh, to maintain the level of excellence that we uh, that that we propose to our guests, um, and we're going to be or have to be very relevant to the local community. Whatever we do, our restaurants and bars need to be successful with the local population. Where in London, if we get the stamp of approval from our local population, everybody else will want to try it because you want to taste and try what the London is like. Not what you can find in Dubai or Las Vegas. No, we're in London. So therefore, we have an array of choices currently. We have extended our relationship with, you know, arguably, you know, one of the very top chefs in England, Gordon Ramsay. Yep. Um, uh, who has had a, a partnership with the Savoy for 20 years at the Savoy Grill, which has just been renovated. Uh, the Savoy Grill is was extraordinary still and will remain extraordinary. It's a beautiful, it's a good, and, and there's nobody better than Gordon Ramsay to be able to maintain those standards and this level of service. We have extended this relationship to the River Restaurant, uh, which uh, was under the hotel management until pre-COVID, mm-hmm. and uh, but it, you know when I arrived, I felt that there was a need to provide uh, something different, something that restaurateurs do best. Restaurant. We hoteliers, yes, we dabble in many things. You know, we are generalists. And because I've done a lot of food and beverage and because I went to Curry's Food, he doesn't make me a great restaurateur. We have great chefs, great restaurateurs who do that very well, probably better than we can do it. We just have to find a way to that our company cultures can work together and provide an experience that still is going to, uh, to be in the guest's interests. So therefore, we've got that. We've got 1890, which is a small 25-seat restaurant, which sits on top of the Savoy Grill, which used to be a private dining room. Mm. And uh, Gordon Ramsay and team wanted to transform this. And there was a kitchen in the back, but and there is an extraordinary review of all the arrival at the Savoy. So they wanted to activate that space and transform that into a small, fine gastronomic experience. And the theme would be paying homage to Auguste Escoffier when he arrived here. Mm-hmm. He arrived here actually seven months after the hotel opening mm-hmm. because the first chef, rest in peace, was not the right chef for the Savoy. And he was not able, with together with the manager, to put the Savoy on the map. And Dodi Cart, back then, he already had the vision as, you know, we need, we are bringing an extraordinary hotel, the first true international luxury hotel to London. But with that, we need to bring the, the top gastronomic experience. And he was able to convince Cesar Ritz, who back then was, you know, he was a hotel in the south of France. He had a restaurant in Baden-Baden, which is in Germany on the, you know, you know Baden-Baden. Yes. Uh, but... He wanted to bring Cesar Ritz because Cesar Ritz was already known to know 
the the who's who, not only in uh, you know in the the new industrialists or the the grand bourgeois and this industrialist who had enormous amount of money, but he was also very well uh, introduced in uh, in the aristocratic circles, especially yeah. the British one, yeah. because he used to work on them in the south of France. Uh, Doy Descartes, the impresario who created Savoy Theatre, the Savoy Hotel, etc., wanted Cesar Ritz. He was only able to convince him to come. And Ritz said, first, he didn't want to. He didn't accept to. He just had the lounge and then he left. He was able to convince Ritz to come here with a big check. Big, big check. And also at the condition that he would be able to bring his chef. The chef was this Augustus Rouffier who, as you mentioned, you know, revolutionized, revolutionized, yes. uh, at least in the West, you know, the, the he revolutionized well, he, he can be termed as a godfather of modern cuisine. Yes, yes, yes. And modern for the last you know, century. was very heavy, very lengthy. And Escoffier simplified it. Now, if you see the menus of Escoffier, you still need to go through 14 courses before you finish your meal. But that was a simplification of the, of the, of, uh, of cuisine. And since then, you know, the Savoy was the place to meet, to entertain. And at the very basis of the, of this entertainment was gastronomy. So we need to, again, it's, you know, it stems from the past, but today, in the future, within the next two or three years, I would like with the rest of my team at the Savoy to be able to offer a choice of experiences, whether it is with Gordon Ramsay, but also in our breakfast and afternoon tea in the Thames for you, which we are working on very exciting plans. I hope they will see the light uh, sometime uh, in the future uh, with a transformation which is still respecting the past, but again, offering something exciting to our guests, whether they are local guests or hotel guests. Um, we've got two extraordinary bars. We've got the American bar. Uh, we've got the Beaufort bar. Both bars have got great personalities and, uh, and offer a very unique experience. And we've got our meeting space. We've got a meeting space where we serve, you know, banquets from our private dining rooms up to, you know, 350 people in our Lancaster ballroom. Um, and we've got in-room dining where we need to constantly, you know, be, you know, uh, again, remain relevant. And finally, we've got uh, one very, very extraordinary outlet or venue, which is called Simpsons in the Strand, uh, which has been in existence since 1828 mm -hmm. and 1848 as a restaurant. So I'm not sure, I don't think it's the, uh, the oldest restaurants in London, but it's certainly one of the most established uh, Very respected. I have, I a number of people asking me, why are you reopening Simpson? What are you doing with Simpson? So I still can't talk about it. I would say that, um, you know, uh, we are very, very close to uh, uh, to finalize plans for a very, very exciting reopening in a format that is, again, we still are going to be in Simpsons, but we're going to be moving forward. I was about to ask some inside secrets of that project, whatever it is. But now we already <laughs> told that it's I will, going I won't to... be able to confirm what we're doing. That's <laughs> fine. So, um... 
Frank, I'm very pleased that you touched base on the diversity, inclusion, equality. That is one thing which has been uh, most talked about when it comes to uh, people, people management. Um, now, the other aspects of post-COVID challenges, which most of the industries world, worldwide was suffering, is in terms of the supply chain and procurement, logistics. Mm -hmm. Now, as a hotel, as a luxury hotel, you deal with a lot of ingredients in the kitchen and in the wider food and beverage. You deal with a lot of equipment, be it anywhere in the hotel. How did you manage the procurement aspect of it in the last few years? I'm sure there's been a huge change in the way procurement as a domain has been seen and there's been a lot of management change in that domain and that area. Well, you've got many things that happened. Of course, you had the pandemic, uh, then uh, in the last few years, uh, uh, you've got the aspect of sustainability where uh, you know, we had to work hand in hand with uh, some of the suppliers to help us, uh, you know, becoming uh, plastic free at least, you know, uh, single plastic use is no longer available for you know in you know in for our guests we still are now working on, on that in the back of house with uh, you know how do you replace plastic bags in the kitchen etc you know it is solutions that we are developing uh, how do we change uh, using uh, even glass uh, bottles uh, especially for water which we use in extreme large quantities in hotels like this uh, to become more sustainable, uh, the aspect of sustainability is also in the, in the in the in in the sense where we want to use more local products. You know, mm -hmm. how many times have you heard chefs saying, you know, farm to table and uh, you know local produce, and uh, which absolutely we must uh, take into consideration now. That said, you know, we still are in Britain, and uh, you know, the type of vegetables you get in the winter time is not necessarily you know, in, in, in quantity and in choice, you know, the same as you have uh, in, uh, in mainland Europe. Uh, and therefore, the access to these uh, products have, uh, have been made more complicated and more expensive, of course, with inflation, uh, but then added to all the administrative, uh, administrative uh, difficulties to import and export, etc. So, of course, if you hear the government, uh, everything is rosy and everything functions. But in reality, yes, we, we are getting tomatoes, but they just don't have any taste because they need to stay longer in fridges. And, and therefore, to have tomatoes that taste like anything, you know, you have to, to make sure that you've got the right sources, that you have to curate them, etc. Fruits, the same issue. Uh, luckily, we've got... Uh, a lot of local supply for for uh, for meat, fish in abundance. Mm -hmm. um, so, a lot of challenges that that perhaps you know are have been uh, let's say resolved mostly, but still, it's not great. Uh, it, and I mentioned if inflation. Uh, inflation means that uh, you know we need to be very clever as to how. We manage our menus, um, and therefore, you know what we can find and how we can transform that at a price that is still, on one hand, accepted by our customers, 
but also uh, at a price where we still can make money. So that's on the food and beverage side. Um, however, it's uh, the supply chain is, uh, for a number of reasons, uh, has become more difficult, especially for all the equipment that we are traditionally importing, uh, yep. uh, especially from Europe. Uh, we have pieces for uh, for our lifts, uh, spare parts for washing machine, uh, which uh, for for our big large irons, uh, which have which are much harder to get, which take longer to import, which create a lot of operational challenges, um, which we have to deal with. Sometimes we have people going back to the you know the good ironer. And uh, having to work, and this is creating a lot of stress and pressures, extra mm -hmm. pressures, and cost because yeah. everything, all, all prices have shot up, yeah. and uh, and therefore, in a way, we had to translate those increases as well uh, to our to our own pricing. Uh, and everybody's aware, you know, restaurants, bars have become more expensive, but also hotel rooms, you know, uh, have you know have increased. Mm -hmm. uh, our rates have increased. So, so we, uh, on the other hand, uh, you know, this is where AI or other uh, technologies can help us to be, uh, to have access to different suppliers and sources of supply that we may not have had the chance to access or intermediary that do a better job at consolidating uh, purchases, which result in uh, being able to uh, to maintain the, the, you know, the cost of acquisition to a reasonable level. Uh, so, yes, it hasn't been easy. I don't, well, Brexit is what it is. Yeah. We know it's, Brexit is behind us. You know, we move on with a new, sets, uh, new set of rules and regulations, and we just have to do the best we can with what we've been given. And at the same time, hopefully, you know, uh, you know future governments will be, will be eager to ease uh, certain things to to help us remaining where we are because at the same time we've got a lot of competition arriving in the in the marketplace very exciting for for london as a destination uh, but it's also a much tougher uh, competitive landscape than than ever before yeah you mentioned briefly about sustainability um, if you look at the hospitality industry in general, it is quite known for its outsized environmental impact <coughs> in general because of the waste which comes out, the energy which needs for it to kind of move on. Uh, any CSR initiatives which you have um, worked on uh, with the Savoy and with probably another partners which you can share? You know, we, we've got recognition from uh, from 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 Green Key, we we were one of the pioneers um, in sustainability here at the Savoy long before my time. Uh, we have a director of quality and sustainability whose job it is, you know, really to look at that. We're now embarking, in addition to uh, what our core is doing with a program called Planet Twenty One, and there are several you know, software and system they're putting into place for us to be able to measure our carbon emission through, uh, especially in terms of energy, 
but now also in terms of food wastage, uh, which we have now started as a company initiative. But in addition to that, you know, the Savoy is 134 years old. It is, it is, it is basically two different buildings at different, you know, high that have been put and come together and uh, with uh, materials that, you know, that of course are being renovated gradually, but it's not the most uh, energy efficient building. So what we have done and, uh, and we have been supported by our ownership and encouraged uh, by ownership to, to embark in a, a program called Briam and Cream, uh, which which are two critical programs to be able for us within the next three years to have a full understanding of where we stand in terms of carbon footprint, mm-hmm. and uh, and also once we know where we are, to set the goals that that we want to achieve in order to remain. Uh, of course, relevant, especially for the future audiences, and uh, so that we can assure, you know, the, the you know the long-term success of the hotel. Those who do not take sustainability and their responsibility toward the environment into consideration will cease to exist. I'm not, you know, I can't predict when, mm-hmm. but I can assure you that, you know, for us. If we not get, if we don't become totally, uh, you know, transparent, uh, engaged, and and uh, driven toward establishing goals, and we will we will cease to exist for a number of reasons. Uh, I don't think that uh, investors will 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 support and encourage building like this to continue to exist. Mm-hmm. So we may become, uh, you know, stranded as an asset if we don't react. Uh, we 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 could uh, become totally ignored by uh, by our guests, who decide that you know dinosaurs like the Savoy should not continue to exist, like diesel cars. We want to be a, we don't want to be a diesel car in 2030. You know, we want to be no no we want to be at the forefront as an example of you know an, an existing you know historical asset that is making constant evolutions and improvements to uh, to remain relevant in the future. That's a strong statement. And oh, it's a, we, we don't have a choice. We don't have a choice. We will improve. We will become. I you know I I can't I, honestly I, I'm unable to tell you at which stage we're going to be carbon neutral. Yep. I don't know if we actually can establish that goal that one day we could become carbon neutral. I don't have I don't have the tools. I don't have the information. But definitely we want to become much better you know, uh, much better, uh, you know, environmental or environment citizens. Yeah, it should be a collective approach from various industries, various sectors. And I'm very glad to know some of the things what you're doing. It's it's, having your own team of people looking into the quality and environmental aspect of it. Something not very often you hear that uh, in hospitality industry. But But did you see... It, it's this is where AI can help us. Of course, you've got build, building management system, but the technology can certainly help us to assess where we are, where you know energy is 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 essentially a, a big part of it. 
but consumption of energy, whether it is electricity, gas, water, uh, are absolutely critical in how we manage that. Yeah. But also food, food wastage, yes. you know, food practices, you know, lavish buffets, choices and plethora of things that after a couple of hours you need to throw away because you no longer can serve it to anyone else. So we need to evolve there and we need to encourage and we need to make sure that our guests know about, you know, other choices, alternative choices that we need to propose them and offer them uh, to, uh, to be less taxing on the environment. Great. Now, talking back or, you know, going back to the point about people, emphasis on people, uh, what can higher education providers like Codembler we, we specialize in the gastronomy segment. We have programs in culinary management. We, have, we are embracing on the higher education segment of both degree and hospitality uh, programs. What do, you, what do you foresee from your end in terms of the new younger generation coming into the hospitality sector? What, what are the areas which you emphasize on in terms of uh, putting it in the forefront of ensuring that these talents can be taken into wider hospitality segment or hospitality sector. Well, you described it, you know, you know, if you wanted to become a chef back in my time, you know, rarely would people go to school for more than two, sometimes four years, then would become a chef. Very few would have a university education. Truth. Now it's not the, if not the majority, it's a lot of them, you know, have got higher educations. And they need it to, uh, you know, to, because because society has changed the number of people who now go to university versus, and I mean, university is not the sacred drawl, you know. I've got friends of mine who actually went to hotel school, did the two years, you know, basic schooling and you know, do exactly the same as I do. So it's not by by any uh, measurement that parasea for, for, for success, but... Uh, but chefs, uh, you know, they have uh, they have become, uh, you know, much more educated on so many fronts that uh, <clears throat> I would say that for them to be able to continue to be one day to be either uh, entrepreneurs and uh, have their own organization, whether it is restaurant or some form of uh, culinary endeavor, they need to understand what uh, what 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 tools and have an understanding of, uh, of, of business in general to be successful. But I think that fundamentally, we still need chefs to know how to do a Bearnaise and, and have, the, and maybe it's not only the Bearnaise, but they need to have the, the basic classic culinary skills so that they can apply those skills to whichever, you know, uh, it, to whichever type of food uh, they are producing. Uh, I was amazed to see at the Cordon Bleu, you know, the, the various fields of expertise that you are now developing, not only here, but around the world, right. with the different type of gastronomy, the different types of food, with the intervention of people from abroad, from not only from the, of course, it's initially it's the, the French, you know, classic, which yeah. I think is still fundamental to understand because it was basically written, you know, the, it was written, um, you know, by people who were doing French cuisine, but everything can be applied to so many other things, but that's not enough. 
if they want to be prepared to be successful, they need to have an understanding of, of course, business. They need to have an understanding of technology. They need to take sustainability into consideration. Um, and, uh, and therefore, the programs that you are now offering to them, uh, it, it's quite amazing how education has evolved. And now you are, train, you are training uh, culinary professionals at, at MBA levels. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's quite, I mean, yeah, and I, you know, I can totally relate to that and understand why. You know, I started as, you know, as wanting to become a chef, finished with an MBA, but I can understand why it is, it is so important nowadays to have not only the, the, the technical skills, but also the business skills to do that. Yeah, also we have now focused on some new concepts or, or concepts are already there, but we have put a lot of emphasis on the plant-based uh, offering, which is huge. The changing need of the customers have evolved and you know it needs to be seen. It needs to be understood by the new generation as well. We have put a lot of emphasis on the nutrition uh, program. We, that is one thing which has been uh, a big highlight as well. Uh, there, are, there are several other aspects which we have kind of looked into as well. But again, I think the changing demography of different consumer patterns and consumption patterns have kind of also given us the challenge to develop new programs to be in sync with the with the industry need so it's quite important for us to also sync with the industry and that academy and the industry syncing is quite important <clears throat> for the larger good for the industry in general but you see it in you know i remember the times when i was you know you know, with my white dock hat, doing this, uh, you know, this training period, this stage, and uh, you had chefs who were, they were totally autocrats. Yes. They were top down. Uh, yes, they used to share their knowledge, but it was their way. There was no other way. They were not geared toward allowing anyone to express their, their talents, their creativity. Nowadays, chefs need to have, and have for the majority, are able, of course, you still need direction. You need order and authority in the kitchen because during the time of service, you know, it needs to be a very, very well-oiled machine. But at the same time, they need to be much more aware of, of the human psychological needs of the youngsters who come into this profession and need to keep them in this profession and not them, you know, do that for four or five years and then go somewhere else because they can't anymore. We know we need chefs, you know, with a long-term vision, with a strategy that enables them to think that, you know, uh, because it's a very difficult profession, because you're serving others, you're serving other people, uh, you know, you're standing, it's physical, it's psychologically taxing. Uh, there are periods of great stress. You know, we probably need to look at, you know, uh, and we are actually, we have started to look at uh, flexing, you know, the, you know, the time at work, whether it is allowing more people doing part-times. Sometimes we have, we are not trying even uh, to have a four-day work week, four on, four off. 
yeah. where where people can choose to do that if they wish if they wish to do so and uh, but we need to take that into consideration if we want to attract so those chefs who are coming and they are being educated at at high levels is good news for the industry thank you i hope we can we as an education provider and like many will will provide justice to the, <laughs> the need of the industry in the coming future. Thank you very much, Frank, for the great insight. Some wonderful topics what we covered there. There is a lot of thought process which you have shared us, which is quite inspiring for probably the listeners who will be kind of being captiva captivated by the, the luxury aspect of how the industry is navigating. So thanks once again for the valuable time which you spared. Thank you, Nitin. Thank you. I look you. forward to working with you. Thank you for allowing future. me to uh, share that with, Our uh, pleasure. with you and with your, with your audience. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Beyond Food and Wine, a Le Cordon Bleu podcast. Keep up to date with all our news and episodes by following us on social media or by signing up to our newsletter. Links are included in the episode notes. Until next time, a bientôt!